Welcome to episode 81 of the Health Unchained podcast. I'm super excited for this conversation with one of the more advanced artificial intelligence decentralized ledger technology companies. Before we start, I'd like to share an update on the decentralized health web series I'm hosting, sponsored by SingularityNet. We've published two episodes already and, and planning an interview with Dr. Eva Lee, a world-renowned COVID-19 and public health researcher at Georgia Tech University. I think that episode will happen sometime in April, and I encourage any listeners to reach out to me via Telegram, Twitter, or LinkedIn if you have any specific questions for Eva. Also, follow and subscribe to the awesome content from SingularityNet. They are doing some very interesting and disruptive work in the artificial intelligence healthcare field. In this episode, Matthew Gaultier, the Chief Product Officer of Alkin, joins me in a comprehensive discussion about artificial intelligence, machine learning, decentralized ledger technologies, federated learning, and how they will all play a role in the future of healthcare prediction models. Matthew is a neuroscientist and computer scientist by training, which allowed him to share some unique insights about brain-computer interface technologies like Neuralink. We also talk about some of the philosophical business decisions we need to make about how data is shared between pharmaceutical companies. Sometimes it's not technology holding back progress. It's the people making decisions based on traditional incentives, which holds us back. I really enjoyed this chat and I hope you all do too. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Matthew Gaultier, Chief Product Officer of Aukin, which was founded in 2016 and has quickly emerged as a leader in bringing AI and ML or machine learning technologies to the healthcare industry. We'll be talking about blockchain technology and federated learning systems and how they are creating amazing new opportunities in medical research and development. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me today. And just for the audience, can you quickly give a brief background about yourself and maybe where you are right now as well? Yeah, <laughs> no worries. So my name is Mathieu Galtier. So I live in France, as you can tell by my accent. And basically, so I was trained and raised as a, an applied mathematician. And now I turn into a product person. I have very big focus on deep tech overall, a lot of uh, different fields of interest from applied mathematics to biology, chemistry, of course, machine learning and blockchain. And through my career, I discovered that I do like organizations and dealing with people, which are often more complicated problems. So I ended up being uh, very well in the startup world, uh, where we focus on deep tech topics and also all of the, the thrill of the people organization in small companies. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And I'd like to learn more about your journey into artificial intelligence and healthcare as well. So would you like to give the audience... Yeah, academically trained in the sense that I have two masters in applied mathematics and I did a PhD in uh, machine learning and neuroscience. 
So for those interested, I'm really keen on the algebra and stochastic processes. And so I went to neuroscience trying to figure out what the brain is doing the, and uh, figuring out is there like a, a learning paradigm that the brain is implementing. Well, I didn't find one. Anyway, it was fun and interesting. Then after uh, having spent uh, a few days in as a, uh, years as a postdoc in different institutions throughout Europe, I turned to the world of startups where I worked first for a, a neurotech company called Dream, which uh, creates a headband that you wear during your sleep. So I'm really uh, well uh, educated about uh, how we sleep and, and what happens in, your, in our brain when we sleep. And then I, I, I got hired at Hawking working on federated learning. So basically coming from neuroscience, I was naturally attracted to healthcare and I'm very happy to work in this area. It's uh, ethical and nice, but I do not have the, I'm not a medical doctor and I don't have this for, for medicine. I'm a deep tech person and I'm keen on technical topics uh, like blockchain, for instance. For sure. And I took a look at your thesis that you, you published in 2011. I thought it was interesting. It's titled A Mathematical Approach to Unsupervised Learning in Recurrent Neural Networks. And you compared the human brain to how uh, artificial intelligence and neural networks can develop over time. I thought that was really fascinating. So anyone in the audience, if you're interested, check that one out. And now that you mentioned this product about the dream band, I, I would like to get into that a little bit later in the episode. And yeah. maybe even talk yeah. about Elon Musk's company. What was Neuralink. it called again? Neuralink. Exactly. Neuralink. Yeah. yeah, that could be part of the conversation as well, I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I have a very uh, particular opinion on this one, so we'll talk about that. I mean, they're doing. there's a lot of progress with Neuralink, so I'm curious to know what you think. Yeah. Um, but before we get into all that, I want to let the audience get more background on you. So when did you first hear about blockchain technology? So I heard about blockchain technology in 2011 uh, when I was doing a postdoc. And basically, it was in a, uh, a website which I like, which is called dig.com. And it was a big thing at the, at the time. And, uh, and basically, I found an article explaining the, the proof of work uh, mechanism from the original Bitcoin paper. And I found this very interesting at the time. I, I read a lot of papers and I was uh, good at de de deciphering these kind of things. And I really loved the technology, the fact that it had an impact in uh, such uh, a deep field as the currency. And so I loved that. But then everything got even bigger for me when I learned about e e Ethereum and all the smart contracts and, and all of this. This was really mind-blowing for me. Uh, so I, I started very uh, to, to spend a lot of time on this. I was very much interested in all the details and also the applications, how we could apply it. And then when I came back to Paris, I organized the, the Ethereum meetup in Paris with a lot of people that was very interesting and, and drive a lot of interactions. But in the end, I figured out I was a bit misaligned with the audience there. And I was a bit disappointed in the sense that my interest was in the trustless collaboration, the smart contracts, what we could build in terms of trust. And I did not care very much about the cryptocurrency itself. And there were a lot of people here who were very interested in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin in terms of investment, who have spent all their money on this. I guess now these guys are very rich. However, I, I was not in this mindset. I have never bought a Bitcoin and I will not because I don't want it to, to, to bias my, the way I, I think and I see the technology. And, and so in the end, I, I backed a, a little bit away from, from this because all of this cryptocurrency frenzy is not really what I'm into, but I've kept a strong interest in smart contracts, in blockchain applications that aims at building trust in places where it's not expected. 
And then I came to building Substra and working at Okin, where we apply a blockchain for federated learning, which I, I guess. We- yeah. And before we get into Okin and the story there, I would like to get a sense of how it was in Paris in 2011, 2012, when you're trying to organize these events. Were there dozens of people? Were they younger and students? Were they older people? What kind of population or people were were at these events and what were they talking about was it just like the speculation part of cryptocurrency or how people can make more money using cryptocurrencies i think there was it was quite a significant crowd at the time so it was approximately i would say around 100 to 200 people coming to some of the events but there were very much two two different kind of groups those who are very interested in the the cryptocurrency things and all the price of bitcoin uh, the new altcoins that we as we called them at the time uh, and all of this and then there was a a smaller group of people which were more into hackathons uh, trying to figure out applications for for the technology we used to play with altcoins and and build our our own uh, uh, blockchain so it was fun but in the end the first group did win over the others in the sense that i I don't think that the the second group uh, trying to build things was brought as as much concrete tangible things as the others who just make made a lot of money as they were expecting and i feel like it's very similar to how it is today as well we have so many more applications that are real world now like people are actually using blockchain for real world things but there is the talk about making money that's that seems to be covering the news more than all the yes. wonderful applications that are happening now. It's unfortunate because it drowns out the progress yeah. that's been made. But as I think Satoshi wrote in his white paper, it's all part of the speculation cycle, right? Like you're going to have people jumping in when hype and it brings them into the new, this new community. And over time, that'll, it'll grow basically then you'll have network effects. Yeah. But what I think is, is a bit, I'm a bit skeptical about is that nowadays, a lot of the reasons why people drive the, the message about cryptocurrencies is because they have invested in it. And and somehow it's like the Ponzi approach. You want, uh, you, you already have bought things, you want more people to get in. So in some sense, as uh, as in, it's different from many other fields in the sense that those who really push it forward, the evangelist of Bitcoin, have an interest in this, which is directly related to if you come in and, and buy some Bitcoins, they are, they are, they are, I mean, they have more money. And this is a bit, uh, this is what I'm a bit worried about, that this trend marketing trend is stronger than the, the message that you could hear on the, the really uh, deep uh, applications and useful applications which are going to lead to some re- added value for society. Interesting. So let's talk about Alkin and how was it founded? Tell us more about the story there. Alkin was founded in uh, 2016 by a, a friend of mine and who is who, uh, who I used to work with uh, as an academic and a medical doctor, so Gilles Varib and Thomas Closel. So basically, these guys, they built Okin as a life science company. And what they want to do is to cure cancer or to cure diseases. And they want to have a strong and massive impact on how we treat patients. So the focus has nothing to do with blockchain, nothing to do with, with, with technology or whatever. It's mainly medical. How do we do this? And they figured out that with the rise of machine learning and the, the collection of data at, at large scale in healthcare, there was a, a strong value to bring here. And so they assembled a team of great data scientists. So that was the, the first thing that they did. And, and, and then I came with some of my colleagues from our project, building more the, the federated learning uh, approach, 
which is not data science per, uh, per se, but, but it is a way to orchestrate data science, orchestrate machine learning so that uh, we can reach uh, even bigger uh, scales in terms of data. Understood. How is the company, like how big is the company and where are the people that work for Alkin? Is it a distributed kind of architecture? Uh, it, it, it tends to now with COVID even more. But yeah, so we are across several countries. A lot of people in France, in different cities, in London as well, of course, and New York. And, and now with the we are going uh, more and more remote. So we are working from everywhere in the world. People tend to rent houses and go there to and, and keep working. So it's it beca it's becoming completely uh, distributed. And we started when I arrived in 2017. It was like, I don't know, 10 people. And now we are 120 approximately, something like this. So we had a, a significant growth in terms of people with the organizational challenge associated. Yeah. And so now we are doing quite well. That's awesome. It's a great story. And I wonder, and I'm sure the audience wants to know, what do you actually provide? What kind of services and solutions does Alkin provide currently? So Alkin, basically, we provide two things, medical data, uh, clinical predictive models. So basically, everything you need to do machine learning with for healthcare. So uh, if you're a pharma company, if you're a biotech or any other care player, you want to buy, for instance, uh, predictive models that are going to, uh, to be a certain type of biomarker for a certain type of disease, or maybe you want to buy, buy directly the data. So that's the, the first thing. We, we, se we sell all the assets that are useful to do machine learning in healthcare. The second aspect is, and what I, where I'm much more focused on, is a, a platform for federated learning, which is called Okin Connect. And, and, and here we provide the, 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 the capabilities to deploy federated learning across several hospitals, several pharma companies, or several data nodes that we connect and that can work together to train collective models. So I have a question about where the medical data comes from. So you're saying you can either sell the data based to different academic institutions or research facilities. Um, trying to understand, is this data coming from hospitals that are selling it to you or is it some sort of license agreements with the government? How does that work? So basically we work a lot with Europe. It's a bit different in the States. In, 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 so in Europe, uh, you, the, the hospitals are not going to sell you the data. They are, they are the custodians of the data. They gather it, they, they, they curate it, they do research with it, but they never sell it. Uh, so it, it has to remain behind the hospital firewalls. So the way that we interact with them is with this federated learning technology, where instead of uh, moving the data, we move the models and the algorithms. So we leave the data behind their firewalls and, and have an orchestration of models uh, traveling from one hospital to the other one uh, so that we can perform this collective machine learning. And here we are actually recreating the new ways and license terms so that we can, uh, 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 in some sense, uh, rent data to be used as training data for machine learning. So it's a, a new kind of, of uh, a new paradigm for the hospitals. It's not always easy to to explain how we are going to do the uh, how we are going to do this and and what where is the value. So we are also innovating on this aspect. And it's actually quite different from what happens in it's much more common to sell data themselves. Uh, and so basically to, to transfer the data from one data center to the other one. And, uh, and so our positioning is much more on the situation in the use case where data cannot be moved for several reasons, which we may talk about later. And, and, and but we do have to reinvent and to find how to create value, how to quantify value out of this. 
and there are fun fun hypotheses that we can talk about a bit more later yeah and i you know presume that gdpr has partially to do with um how you built your model as well yes and i think i just want to emphasize this point because i think it's very important is you're not taking the data and then providing it to other researchers what you're doing is you're taking may probably anonymized data and creating models algorithms maybe to that can be applied on future data that could be applied on other parties data yeah. yeah so we only deal with uh, machine learning models so basically the technology that we build is a kind of orchestration and pipes of models that go from one hospital to the other one get trained locally on this one then to the next one and the main output that we build and that is our proper property at Okin are the models which can be then sold to other hospitals or to pharma companies depending on the use case where we are looking at but the data we don't own any data we do not want to own any data and we never touch uh, the data for real uh, so we're simply sending our models training them on the data and, and getting back the models themselves so let's say you sell one of your models machine learning models um predictive models to a company and they have their own data set they apply this model to their own data set and are they able to improve upon your existing model to have a yeah and does Alkin yeah, so, have any yeah, so that's does Alkin have any, do they, do you also get that new model, that improved model, or is that now only the ownership of the, the company that purchased it? Uh, that's a good point. So, so it depends on the use case. There are no like a, a clear situation where we always do this way. So um, mm -hmm. some pharma partners uh, do want to keep all the, the IP, which is linked to the data that they have collected themselves. Some others, like, maybe different actors are okay that we get back the model in the end. So it, it, it depends a lot, but you're right in the in this idea that um, what we propose are pre-trained models, which can be taken as initial conditions, initial models that can be then fine-tuned on others' data to, to make them more applicable to the, the use case at hand. Interesting. All right, thanks for sharing that. Can you tell us more about the technology stack that Alkin operates on? Uh, yes. So the technology stack is for the federated learning. Uh, so we start from infrastructure deployed Kubernetes. So basically everything is uh, on top of Kubernetes uh, from our perspective. And all the application layer doing federated learning, implementing the protocols, the communication, the security is containerized as Docker containers, which are shipped over Kubernetes. So in some sense, let's say we have a, a network with uh, three hospitals. We have three Kubernetes deployed, one at each hospital. And on top of each of these Kubernetes, we have our application layer, which is deployed here. The application layer is made of uh, uh, a lot of Python. So we, we use a lot of uh, Django and Django REST framework for, for, for deploying the application itself. And, and we use the distributed ledger technology called Hyperledger Fabric uh, to operate in a trustless way the, all the the, the the metadata operations and the orchestration across the network and and so this technology is offered and used by by data scientists who are going to implement their algorithms uh, to train their model and so the algorithms can be written in any uh, machine learning frameworks available for instance pytorch or, or tensorflow and and so you can just come with your algorithm make it in the format of Okin connect and then ship it across the network the way you want and and in the end you get back the model in the format you want but most of the time it's uh, hdf5 uh, which is uh, which is interoperable and that you can um, use in many different uh, situations got it yeah I, I would like to learn more about your selection of hyperledger fabric and the 
steps you took to make that decision later in the episode here. But I also know that you are also the founder of Substra Foundation as well. So what is the vision for Substra and how does that relate to Alkin? Substra Foundation is the host for the open source core of Okin Connect. So Okin Connect was designed with an open core approach, uh, meaning that uh, the heart of the, the solution, the core of the solution is open source. We use uh, Apache to license. You can find it on GitHub at uh, Substra Foundation on GitHub. And uh, and so the idea is that we want we wanted and we, we want this core to be open source for several reasons. One, because we are selling trust in the end. Ultimately, what we are providing with our federated learning technology powered by blockchain is a situation where the partners can trust that their data is going to remain safe and that we can still provide services on top of this. So providing transparency is really key up to the code itself, which will operate, which will operate the platform. The second aspect is that we would we really like to see some consolidation of the platform across different industries. We are working in healthcare, but it could be applied in other fields. And so we are opening this so that it can be taken and used by others. It has not been the case yet. So we have to say that for now, it's uh, Substrate mainly be de deployed by Okin, the majority of this. And finally, and, and this the idea is to say that today, if we look at the, the, the key software, the impactful software at the world scale, all of them are open source. It's really rare uh, that to have something which is proprietary and which works at the time of Windows is dead. Now it's Kubernetes, it's, everything is open source. And, and so we bet from the beginning that if we wanted to be, build something which was at the scale of the world, it needed to be open source. So we open sourced it and Substra Foundation is the nonprofit which is hosting the code and animati animating the, society, the, the, the community around this. And they have a lot of work as well on the on, the, on, on the, the trustworthy data science ecosystem. So there are a lot of questions with ma machine learning and artificial intelligence about ethics, about how to remove bias, about how to do it in a trustworthy way. We believe that uh, federated learning, uh, Substra and Okin Connect are solutions for, for some of the problems, but the, the, the question is wider. And so there is a lot of evangelism about that, which is uh, done by the, the employees of Substra Foundation. I'm the president of the Substra Foundation, but uh, acting uh, mainly uh, as a guide and, uh, and, and not uh, in the day-to-day -day operations of, uh, of this uh, animation of the ecosystem. But the open source code is developed by Okin exclusively with some contribution from other people in the ecosystem and, and hosted in the Substra Foundation. I have to agree the importance of open source, especially as we're entering this Web3 world is super important. Uh, I think traditional software companies are still struggling to fit in with their closed source code and core code. Even the software I use for my audio editing is, is open source, OBS and Audacity, and it's great. Let's jump into the machine. Let's jump into machine learning for healthcare and why that's important. We talk about AI and machine learning and how it's gonna improve healthcare and the world and everything, but why? I think some people still don't understand why. Yeah, there, there are many kind of applications of machine learning in healthcare and other fields. What I'm going to talk today is what we believe in at Okin and what uh, uh, makes the most sense in my opinion. And so the, the key topic here is precision medicine. Basically, what we want to do with machine learning is customize the treatments uh, to individual patients based on their medical data. 
So given the, your DNA uh, and the DNA of the tumor that you may have somewhere in your body, we are able to figure out what is the treatment which is going to, uh, to, to make you uh, heal faster. And so the, the key here is that we are going from a situation where you had drugs and you had a single description of how you should take it, how much you should take uh, and when, and to shift towards something where it is customized and personalized to your particular situation. And to do this, machine learning is a great tool because you start from the data of the patients, DNA, like histology slides, radiology, MRI, any kind of data that you can get from the, the, the patient. And based on this data, you can tune and identify what is going to be the best treatment, for instance, for these patients. Uh, I strongly believe that without machine learning, precision medicine would be very difficult. But machine learning provides a really uh, a nice and, and relevant ways to address this. And, and basically, to make things a bit more concrete, there are two aspects that uh, we believe are in machine learning for healthcare. The first one, as I said, is respond to treatment. I'm going to take some samples from your body and analyze, are you going to be a good responder to uh, immunotherapy, for instance? And we know that not everybody uh, is a good responder to immunotherapy, but we could, from your DNA, from some from histology slides, from measurements of your body, we can identify this. So that's uh, the prediction of response to treatment is a very big deal because we could uh, heal much faster and create a, a, a completely diverse uh, uh, and different ecosystem in terms of treatment. The second uh, concrete example are biomarkers. So biomarkers are used everywhere in, in healthcare. And basically it's a way to, uh, to get some elements, some understanding about what, how your body reacts, where, what, what's happening with you with uh, certain types of biomarkers. So I want to make it clear. Some biomarkers could be simply saying, do you have this mutation and what we are going uh, in, in your DNA? And this mutation could be, I mean, very relevant to figure out whether you're likely to have this or that disease. I don't know. What I mean is that this biomarker, maybe we could take just a simple sample uh, from your body. We just take a, a little piece of the tumor that you may have. We slide it uh, between uh, uh, two uh, windows of glass. We look at this in the microscope, gives a histology slide, an image that we can analyze. And from this image, we could say, okay, the, the, this patient has this mutation. Much cheaper than doing uh, anything uh, uh, with sampling and sequencing your DNA and, and doing like this. It's, it can be done very quickly. And we, we, we want to build biomarkers from cheap data that can be taken from your body. So these are the two examples which I think are the most powerful. And fundamentally, in across all of these examples, the, the goal is to build predictive models from medical data sets. And, we, and everything is about these predictive models, how we are going to build uh, function models, which help predict, are you likely to, to have this, this gene mutation? Are you likely to respond to this treatment? And this is what is the big deal about machine learning for healthcare. That's really great examples. I do have a question about the types of data that you're potentially going to be using or currently using. So we're talking about DNA from a person, histology images, take a sample of a tumor, and look at it, stain it, or whatever. But what about the different, maybe mental health sort of factors, social factors that might influence a person's ability to heal, or maybe their immune their immune system, how that reacts to their environment, or just how many 
connections they have to the world or if they have a big social group or, or small one, are they lonely? Are these factors, I personally think that social determinants are very important for a person's health, but are these factors going to contribute to this predictive model? Have you started working on that or is this very particular to objective medical data at this point, which is makes sense. Yeah. What's your take there? So I, I think you're right, especially in these COVID times, we do know that being uh, all alone all the time is not uh, good for, for your health. So I, I agree with you. So the way we address this is uh, through what we call what is called uh, multimodal analysis. So basically what we are going to do at Okin, we are specialists in uh, oncology and, and, and histology, but we also uh, together with these images and long sequences of, of letters, we bring some uh, tabular data, which corresponds to, uh, for instance, your age, do you smoke? And, and we could consider in this data to add some other kinds of, as you said, like the number of uh, good friends that you have, the number of interactions you have every day, or, or any social social demographic information that we could add here. And the idea is to do machine learning from all of these sources at the same time, so that they can, I mean, their their influence can be compounded, and we can understand what's the impact of the social demographics. So at Okin, we do have some projects, especially uh, related to mental uh, diseases, which use social demographic variables, but it's not always the case. For instance. If you look at a very, uh, I would say, fundamental cancer where you have a metabolic pathway which is altered in some way, you don't necessarily need to have the, the very high level social demographic thing. So the key, technically speaking, is to be able to handle multimodality. Uh, when you know how to do this, I don't think we are good at this and this is one of our specialties, then you can, depending on your study design, include social demographic variables or not. Understood. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Given all this research that you're doing and the models that you're building in clinical trials, I think that's a space where there's continued challenges with getting patients that are eligible, one, and also making sure that the research is done efficiently and effectively and cost effectively, too. So tell me about some of the challenges and opportunities that Alkin is looking at in the clinical trial space. So in terms of opportunities, clinical trials are, are, are massive in terms of money and resources that they mobilize. This is it costs a lot of money to do to be, to build a drug and to bring it to a phase three, a phase four. Uh, so this is a, a very important aspect and place and even business where we want to look at in terms of the healthcare ecosystem. Also, in terms of uh, challenge, bringing a drug from ID to market is more and more difficult. What we are observing is that it's the, the low-hanging fruits have been taken now. All the pharma fight for, uh, and the level of the, the difficulty, the challenge is increasing with time and it costs more and more money and there are uh, more, less and less good candidates which are identified and brought to market. So this is a big field. At Okin, we want to address this and this is one of the core focus and field of applications that we have. And, and basically, if we go back to the two examples that I gave, being able to identify the response to treatment of patients or being able to identify specific biomarkers from patients is extremely useful for doing clinical trials. And basically, if you put yourself in the shoes of a pharma company right now, what machine learning could bring is that we could very simply and cheaply screen patients to figure out who would respond positively to the treatment that you're offering. So it means that instead of uh, going and, and selecting uh, 100 random patients, first you apply the screening mechanism on, on 1,000 patients, 
you select the 100 patients which are likely to respond the best to this and then you can do your your experiment on these ones of course the drug that you are going to to to, to provide afterwards will have to be combined with the screening mechanism but it's very good because it can make your, your drug much more specific much more adapted to the different uh, uh, kind of patients so this screening approach is uh, really good uh, for the pharma because it means suppose in all the data banks uh, across the world we just apply this screening mechanism we could identify a lot of eligible patients which would benefit a lot from the drugs and this would be a game changer for a lot of drugs and, uh, and a lot of pharma companies another example is the idea of identifying subpopulations where the drug outcompetes the market. So we are going to say, okay, this drug maybe is not as competitive as another drug on the, on the same market, but we could, with machine learning, identify the, the biomarker, identify the, the group of patients uh, which are going to be very receptive and responding to this drug. And then it creates a, 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 a smaller market where the, this secondary drug, I would say, outcompetes the, 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 the competitor. This is why machine learning could be very useful for, for clinical trials. We are not there yet. It is growing at the pace of healthcare, which is not very fast, but we are seeing the first, the first companion diagnosis coming with the drugs. And this is a very, and we believe a very powerful trend, which will change how clinical trials are done and ultimately how even treatments and drugs are, are given to, to patients. Healthcare is slow. And my next question is, why has the promise of AI been so slow to penetrate our healthcare delivery systems? I think it's a very good question. So it is definitely true that AI has been, uh, has been slow to penetrate um, healthcare compared to other fields like advertising or automotive, it's obvious. Mm. So, so my personal opinion here, there are two elements. The first one is that the medical data production is decentralized by nature. So it's not like uh, your Google, you control like so many smartphones, a million billions of smartphones, and you just change an update in your Android version and all the data comes formatted in the same way uh, to, the, to a central point. It doesn't work this way in healthcare. You have many different players. All the hospitals are locally uh, rooted in, the, in, their, in their areas. They have different systems. Uh, they have different uh, practices. The, the medical doctors, they, they don't even speak the same languages. And in the end, all of them collect data and, and they are completely heterogeneous. The interoperability is hell. And so basically, there is no one central big data set uh, with a lot of data. And, and if you combine this with the fact that the, the, the data space of healthcare, of medical data, is huge because we are talking about... Uh, the, the, combinator, uh, the combinatorial of the DNA or, or, or the images, uh, which are uh, with, with amazing resolution. So in the end, you have really scattered data, not very interoperable, and, and we could never consolidate a very good database uh, that leads to a very performant result. So I think this reason is one of the main reasons why, why it's difficult. And it gives some ideas about who are the players who are going to be the, the most powerful those who can gather a lot of data. Look at China, look at the US with the big hospital chains that you have. And we hope that federated learning is a way to create this big data set. So we hope to be a game changer in this fundamental difficulty of the healthcare sector. The second reason why I think healthcare has not been impacted by AI very much is that evaluation, certification, regulation is a very big deal in healthcare. 
So you cannot bring an innovation like this, clap your fingers and say, okay, look at that. And, and then, yeah, yeah, it's in healthcare. You cannot just put a bad product on the market and people are going to die eventually. It's completely, you can't do A-B t- testing like you, you bring uh, some model and it fails, no big deal. 10 people are dead and no, so this cannot happen. And so basically the, the process of exploration of, of innovation is slow by design because you uh, you put a, a huge penalty on mistakes, much more than in other fields. Uh, take advertising, for instance, you can make mistakes and maybe you are going to sell less of this type of shoes, but well, the big deal. The consequences in healthcare are much more detrimental versus consumer product stuff. I totally agree. But let's stay on this topic and kind of shift over to federated learning. So what is federated learning for the audience? Very basic explanation, please, and then you can dive deeper into it. Federated learning is a way to train machine learning models across distributed data sets. So you have a network of, let's say, hospitals. They want to collaborate, but they do not want to share their data. With simple machine learning, it simply doesn't work. You can't do this. Federated learning is a way to say your data stay at home, and we are going to train one machine learning model across the four hospitals. And the way we do this is by letting the models travel from one hospitals to the other one. And so federated learning is this communication protocol on top of the, and creating a network that makes it possible to train models across all of the hospitals. So basically, it's the opposite of the centralization of the data. So let's take the, the, the standard paradigm that we have today in, in the technology is that you build an app, all the data comes to your server, and then you play with this data. This cannot happen in healthcare for reasons we have discussed before. So basically, we do not centralize the data. We do not ask the data to move. On the contrary, we ask the models to move between the different uh, data centers. And this way, it gives the, the, the possibility to train common machine learning models across data sets which have remained which which have remained hidden all the time from each other and been done in, with the highest level of privacy because the the data have never been exposed to to any uh, human thank you for that and you mentioned data privacy so we know regulators make their best effort for protecting consumer privacy or at least that's what the perception is of course and it's a huge challenge of course it's not easy to both allowed for technology innovation to happen and at the same time kind of protect people's data. Uh, and that's the challenge we face today in the world. But we do have HIPAA and GDPR and other laws that are trying to do this. What can we realistically expect from regulators who are working on data privacy versus what's going to happen in the real world? So I have, a, I think, a counterintuitive opinion on this. I do not think that GDPR and HIPAA are the main reason why we should care about privacy. For sure, GDPR and HIPAA are very important to, to, to for the, the citizens' rights and, and I mean making sure that the, the data remain prevent from a citizen perspective. But let's for, for, for a moment forget about the personal data and the the, the 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 sensitiveness of this data. Let's put this on the side. The 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 key to understanding why they, data needs to remain confidential is that data is valuable. So if you are a hospital, if you are a researcher, if you are a pharma company, collecting the data, harmonizing the data, designing the study and doing all of this costs a lot of money. It's huge in terms of money and also in terms of effort. 
and having worked in academia, it's they are paid by public funding. They are, they use grants which are also public, and they, everything is public there. And you could think that okay, everyone is going to share the data, but they simply don't because they, it's their identity. It took them so much effort to do this and to build this. So in the end, and this is the the, the kind of romantic attachment to the data. But if you look at the pharma approach, it's simply uh, you're not going to share data where it's investment. You invest in building your data sets. So in the end, I think that the main reason why data has to remain private is not necessarily from regulation. That It does not stem from the regulation. It stems from the competitiveness of data, the value of the data themselves. Then, of course, GDPR and HIPAA put a frame around this. And I'm, I'm personally quite happy that this happens. And as a citizen of Europe, I'm, I like GDPR. It protects me from things. But I don't think it's the main driver for the system to consolidate confidentiality and privacy. It's more that we are in a competitive world in academic, from our academic perspective, but also from business perspective and finding drugs, pharma companies. And data is simply not something that you share like this, especially if you spend a lot of effort and money building up this data. Interesting. So you're saying that privacy concerns are not mainly going to be driven by regulators, but it's going to be market driven because of competitive forces between institutions, companies, organizations. What about individual personal data? And it's my own data is somewhat valuable to me, but by itself, it's not that valuable. It's much more valuable when it's part of a huge you know, data set so we can gain insights. Yeah. What's the value of my own personal data and should I even try to protect it or what's your perspective? I think it's a very good point and I, I do agree with, with you that we, we, we create value by just going to the doctor somehow. But if you look at GDPR, I know less about HIPAA, but GDPR I know very well. GDPR does not talk about that. They don't talk about money. They just talk about consent. Do you agree that your data are going to be used this way? They, at no point is there any discussion in this field of regulation or whatever to give back money to patients. In some states, for instance, in France, are saying, okay, we are going to, to gather some data in what they call the health data hub and then and, and, and create value out of it, which will come back to the state so that we can operate and, and improve the return on investment for the social security or whatever. But it doesn't come back directly to, to the patients. And, and what I think in the end is that this is one of the big elements which is forgotten from all these debates. Uh, the regulation uh, cares about making sure that you consent to, to, to what is going to happen with your data and that you do not you are not put in a bad position in the future because someone exploits your data. But the question of how can there is value in my data, why don't I get something out of it? This is something which is largely unanswered either by regulation or the current practices that we have. There are some companies who try to do this and I think it's fine and fair. I'm a bit skeptical about the, the maturity of the field on this aspect. And also, if you look at the ethical impl implications of this, it means suppose you have a very rare cancer, then it means you're rich because you bring the data points which help solve this. So in some sense, it's a bit counterintuitive. You could be happy to be sick because it would give you money for, for something. So I, I don't have a personal strong opinion on this, but what I think is that Often the, the question of privacy is uh, is a, yeah, a big vague stuff where everything inside and people talk about privacy, but there are different topics here. There is regulation, there is the value of your own data, and there is the, the market dynamics which promotes privacy by itself. And I think all of these are, are, are quite different. 
That's a really good point. And you made me think of the black market of kidneys and how that's valuable, but we have regulation around it. So we don't have people pulling kidneys out of people just to sell them on the black market, which is obviously very scary and dangerous. Thinking about data, it's a little less dramatic, but still could be pretty dramatic in how it could affect your life. Some of your data being out there could affect how you go about living your life in your community. Very interesting. Can you share some of the projects that you're working on and Alkin is working on over Europe and across the world, actually? Yeah, so I think it's good to understand fidelity learning through through a clear examples. And I'm going to talk about two examples. The first one is called the Health Chain Project. It's across hospitals in France. And here uh, we are many academic. What we want to do is to build a machine learning models across four hospitals, which is going to d- describe the response to treatment for breast cancer. So how do we do this? We have four hospitals. The, the, the medical doctors in these hospitals know each other. We organize meetings with them. So it's an existing academic network and medical networks of uh, people who like to work with each other. And they are going to align on certain medical questions, saying, OK, let's ad- address the breast cancer, uh, uh, triple, uh, triple positive, uh, these kind of things. Uh, they count the number of patients. And then they, they, we discuss when we build the data preparation manual so that everyone aligns the data. We have discussions and we build these four data sets, which are logged into our platform, uh, Okin Connect, in the four hospitals. And then uh, comes the data scientist from Okin. And these guys, they can't see the data primarily. When, because it's a research project, sometimes they can still go on site and, and look at the data if there is a problem. However, by design, they don't see it. And they just run and train algorithms across the, 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 four, the four hospitals. And then what we do is we compare what happens if you build a, and train a model only with a single hospital, if this collaboration did not exist, and how it, it happened, what's the performance for the, the, the model trained across the four hospitals. And the, the performance is much better. And we have like interesting uh, findings. I cannot reveal much because we are actually publishing a paper about this right now. But we have very interesting findings in the fact that who is going to help who the most? Is it like the best hospital with the best data sets who is going to benefit a little and the others are going to be, be going to benefit a lot from this one? Or, or is it like the, the best hospital which, going, which is going to benefit even more from the worst hospital or the, those who have a smaller data set? And here we have seen very interesting effects where even if you don't have very good results alone, you can bring a lot of value to the others. And this is this was the big surprise for us, which means that it calls into question the, the notion of shittiness of data sets. Even if your data set doesn't look good, maybe it's going to help others a lot. And that's this I find fascinating. So this is one project we have, and this one, we are about to publish a paper on this. We are very excited. It's the first, the first federated learning project on images at scale with real players, not academic setting. We are very much in hospitals with real patient data, which, which is done. The first project like this in the world, we are very happy, excited, and hear from us too. Do you know when that's coming that's... out? Is it this year or <laughs> I, I will definitely, uh, you know. Yeah. That up on social media I'm not going well. to put much pressure on the people who are working on this, but it, it should be in the coming months. It's happening. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. And so, so the That's second really project is... Really quick, though. Yeah. It's interesting how you mentioned who will be gaining the most from that kind of collaboration because it changes the incentives that we currently have in research where we don't necessarily want to share. I'm just curious to see how that turns out. Really cool. 
Yeah, well, uh, let me explain you the next one, and then we go. We can talk briefly about the incentives and game theory because federated learning is a, a crazy game theoretic situation. So, next topic and next uh, other project is called the Melody Project. So, it's uh, ten pharmaceutical companies who are going to train a unique model across their data sets. The data sets that they bring here are some of the most valuable data items in that they have it's the the library of compounds the library of drugs that they want to to that they have these are the the, the drugs candidates uh, somehow so basically they spent a lot of time trying to create new drugs evaluating them on, on different uh, uh, proteins different targets figuring out whether they match or not so this is the, the field of drug discovery where you don't know anything about that you have a target you know that okay this protein i want to inhibit but I also want a drug which is not going to uh, disrupt how my, how, how my heart functions. So I have several targets and I want to figure out which molecule is going to be the best one. So usually the way they did it, they would sample all the molecules in the world go in the deep sea and find the, the different molecule and they would test it and find something like that. Now we are getting into a world where we do this with machine learning. So how do we do this? The, what we are doing now is trying to predict from the formula of a drug, maybe it doesn't even exist, but you just have the formula of this drug, you want to predict how it is going to, to bind with a certain protein, how it is going to, what is the toxicity of this, of this uh, uh, thing. And so we want to predict this simply with a machine learning model. And to train these models, we have all the experiments which have been done in the whole history of the pharma company. And in the project, we have pharma companies who are like 100 years old or something like this. And we have data points which come back like 50 years in, in, in the past or something like this. That's uh, amazing that they, 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 they've put like a lot of effort in gathering the, the, their most critical data for this. And so what we do here is we build this single model that in, in, in the end is going to provide for each pharma the best predictor for a, a given molecule to figure out whether it's going to bind with a certain target uh, protein or, or, or different things like this. So that's quite similar to, to the health chain project, different application. Here we are in drug discovery. These are no patient data, it's molecule chemistry data. But there is a twist here, which is a bit complicated, so I will be quick, is the fact that the pharma do not even want to share with each other the targets that they are analyzing. They don't want to say, I'm focusing on this protein because they are competitors. And if you if if their competitor knew that they would be working on this protein, maybe it would give a hint. Oh, okay, you are working on Alzheimer, and so we have competition here, and it's and and so they do not want to share. No, and of course not the the, the molecules themselves, but not even the the targets or the nature of the label in the machine learning problem. So we've had to build a, a privacy preserving multitask framework where we only share the bottom layers of a neural network. You can go on the website, uh, look it up if you're interested, or, or shoot me a mail. But the idea is that it's even more uh, secure uh, on this one. And we've had like many other layers of security, and we are in, this, in a setup which is extremely secure. And, and the simple fact is at Okin, we do not, we operate the platform, but we do not even have access to the models or the data, of course, or anything. Actually, we just operate blindly a platform which trains a model across the different uh, pharma partners. And, and this, this project is really, is really crazy. And if I go back to the game theoretic approach, this is very interesting because if you're a pharma company, you absolutely want to get in such a project like this because all your competitors are consolidating a model across their all, all of their data set. If you're out, you're the only loser. 
And in some sense, it creates a kind of business dynamics, which is very strong, where you do not log out of this project because all your competitors are here. And this is something which we are finding very powerful and creates a, a very interesting uh, market traction for us, which is not, you, we don't sell to a single pharma companies, we, sh we sell to consortia. Uh, and we are in this competitive framework, which is uh, at least for me, uh, a new world to explore in terms of uh, how we do business. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I wonder how many, so you're building these simulations, drug interactions, looking at how the spatial geometry between the proteins and the different molecules could interact instead of doing it in the lab, you're doing it in a simulation. But what's really interesting is the business dynamics is because are you seeing companies starting to become more interested in acquiring each other so that they could share their targets and then they could come up with solutions much more quickly instead of having to do it semi-siloed <laughs> actually what we are providing is a way to is a different frame a different way from acquisition of a new company so you could learn from the data of this company in uh, anonymous model which then can uh, uh, orient your own research and make the and, and make you and what we are trying to, to improve is the to extend the applicability domain of the models. Meaning, of course, if you're a pharma, you are very good at predicting on your own data, but you want to be better on the data that you don't have. So that's when you are going to exper experience on them and do research, then suddenly you have a very good performance. So instead of going for traditional merger and acquisitions and things like this, you could simply come to the project and you'd benefit from the, all the data of all the pharma in the world in a privacy-preserving way while keeping all the sensitive information out of the eyes of your competitors. So it's what we call a co-petition, where you collaborate with your competitors. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. One of the most elusive visions for blockchain technology is the enablement of decentralized identity systems that can allow people to manage their own professional credentials in healthcare as well as other industries such as education and construction. According to a recent article on Wired, Microsoft has been working on a decentralized identity solution since 2017 and has slowly built out the infrastructure over the past few years. At the recent Ignite conference, Microsoft announced that it will launch a public preview of its Azure Active Directory verifiable credentials in the spring of 2021. Think of the platform as a digital wallet like Apple Pay or Google Pay, but for personal identifiers rather than credit cards. Microsoft is starting with things like university transcripts, diplomas, and professional credentials, allowing you to add to its Microsoft Authenticator app along with two-factor codes. It's already testing the platform at Keio University in Tokyo, with the government of Flanders in Belgium, and with the United Kingdom's National Health Service. In the NHS pilot, for example, health care providers can request access to professional certifications from existing NHS health care workers, who can in turn choose to allow that access, streamlining a process for transferring to another facility that previously required a much more involved back-and-forth process. Under Microsoft Setup, you can also revoke access to your credentials if the recipient no longer needs access. Microsoft's ubiquity potentially makes it a good candidate to rally a critical mass of users. With this in mind, the company developed Azure Active Directory verifiable credits off of open authentication standards like the World Wide Web Consortium's WebAuthn. 
Currently, Microsoft is working with at least seven digital identity partners to pilot the platform with the goal to expand that list quickly over time. The system is based on the Bitcoin blockchain and uses an open protocol called SideTree to add records of transactions, in this case, identity verifications to the blockchain. Microsoft says Azure Active Directory verifiable credentials uses a custom but still open source implementation of SideTree called Identity Overlay Network, or ION. Organizations will be able to run their own ION node to verify and store identifiers for their members like citizens, students, or employees. Computer scientist and co-director of Cornell University's Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Contracts, Amin Gun Sirer, says, Privacy, decentralization, and trustworthiness are very difficult to achieve at the same time. Blockchains make privacy difficult, decentralization makes it difficult to identify trustworthy credentials, and various choke points in the ecosystem might very well mean that access to these technologies end up going through centralized portals, unquote. But more importantly, these technologies require a rethinking of the notion of identity, he says. And it's here where most enterprises falter, as their business models are inherently tied to knowing and monetizing every bit of data about their users. Properly implemented decentralized digital identity solutions promise to provide more control to users. Quote, I just fundamentally doubt that the breakthrough we need can come from a centralized software vendor. To learn more, check out the original article in the show notes. For interested listeners, I have a whole SoundCloud playlist with guest episodes that are entirely focused on decentralized provider credentialing. I highly recommend you check that out. I'll leave a link in the show notes for easy access too. And now back to our conversation with Matthew Gaultier, Chief Product Officer at Alkin. Can you describe the competitive or cooperative landscape or cooperative <laughs> landscape and any direct competitors to your business? So, that, so as I discussed previously, there are two, two, two kinds of products that we have. Machine learning for health. Here, it's a crowded uh, field. I particularly like the company called Tempus, where they have so much data about uh, DNA and things like this. I think these guys are, are really good and how they are going to help solve cancer. So these guys are, uh, are flat iron or things like this. These guys are, uh, tend to collect a lot of data and find ways to to, to consolidate huge data sets. So these guys are, are, are really good. And, uh, but at Okin, we don't have data. We have the data science expertise, uh, but we use machine, uh, federated learning to, to build the, the machine learning models. On the federated learning aspects, we do not have direct competitors yet. Uh, there are other federated learning frameworks which are used in banking, especially in China. Yeah, it's growing quite fast there. And we have like a structural competitors, those who fight for the IT of the pharma companies, of the hospitals, or the big uh, uh, medical data institutions. And I think that Palantir or IBM are very important competitors to us, or maybe future collaborators. I don't know. But but uh, yeah, in terms of providing federated learning dedicated to healthcare, we right now we are a, a bit alone, which is good and bad. So so I know Google is working on 
federated learning, but I don't know how specific it is to this application. So Google is working on federated learning with a very different application, which is mainly with smartphones. So basically, when you type your, your uh, send a text to someone, then it, it, it proposes some words, mm -hmm. and the building of this predictive algorithm based on what you type, what it proposes, is built through federated learning. But they have actually a very different use case in the sense that they have like a, billions of phones. And, and and so they and and some of the phones can get switched off during this so they have a lot of uh, resiliency and robustness of their algorithms to deal with and the data is not so large we are in a different situation with like um, dozens of nodes and uh, huge amounts of data and we do not want to forget any of the pharma partner here so we cannot drop anyone along the line so the technology is similar the mindset is similar but the application and 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 if you look at the at the details it's uh, completely different and also to be honest from a european perspective but i also i think also from a business perspective google is a data company you are not going google is not, never going to sell anything to hospitals not in europe so this they are technological competitors but they are not uh, in our field and, and they, they, unfortunately for them they simply cannot go there i think in the united states is a little differently they are working with hospitals here but we don't have to get into that now so we talked about machine learning and we talked about how federated learning is actually a more improved way of doing this without sharing data with each other, with different organizations sharing their data. Let's get into blockchain and federated learning. So how is blockchain adoption and awareness in healthcare developing globally and domestically? Let's start there. So I think a role that in healthcare, at least in the field which I know, uh, blockchain is not mature yet. It is talked about a lot. There are some projects, people are interested in it. But before everything, I think it is not well understood. And actually, the uh, people, they have a kind of love-hate interaction with blockchain, you know. And, and, and if you look at the best examples that we have, the most successful example of blockchain that we have in the world, they are not really well adapted to healthcare. So... If we take like the, the success story of blockchain, which is Bitcoin, this is the success story is for decentralized investments and speculation. Uh, so basically, if I want to put it like uh, in a, in a the blunt way, uh, for me, Bitcoin is a framework for building up Ponzi schemes, and that's good. Indeed, it creates a, a lot of value, excitement, and people talk about that a lot, and that's interesting. But in healthcare, you don't care about Ponzi schemes or investment or anything like this. You just want to cure patients. So this does not resonate with the healthcare sector. The second topic is that in the blockchain, uh, so, so, th so there are two worlds of the blockchain, which are called blockchain, but not do not necessarily overlap, in my opinion. It, they are public blockchains and private blockchains. The public blockchains, anyone can become a node. I buy a large computer, I plug it, and I can become a node. That's it. In private blockchains or consortium blockchains, you have a very clear and explicit and often contractual uh, relationship between the nodes of, uh, of a network. And this is much better much for healthcare because people want to know each other. The know your customer is absolutely in, uh, I mean, crucial in with hospitals and things like this. So when we talk about blockchains, people don't really know whether we are in the public or the private or don't know the difference. And sometimes it's very scary for them. We have, we've had to talk with hospitals and explain to the legal departments, no, we are not going to put your institution on the web and, and, and not, not anyone can log into them. Big difficulty. Third topic for me is the fact that the, the notion of cryptocurrency, which is overwhelming in the field of blockchain, 
Unfortunately, I think for healthcare applications, the like uh, th there is always this mix between what is a security, what is a utility, and this impacts a lot healthcare because healthcare doesn't care about the security aspect, but a lot about the utility. What, where is the, uh, why do we would, would would we pay for something? And so when you see the price of something doubling overnight or whatever, it just puts you off if you are thinking in terms of utility, as is the case in uh, healthcare. And finally, and I think it wraps up over all of these people in healthcare do not, the bad reputation, like the dark markets, the, the way that it's uh, used for speculation, the, all the reputation around Bitcoin and the blockchain is not really nicely suited for healthcare. So in the end, just uh, maybe I'm a bit ashamed of this, but uh, we tend not to talk much about blockchain when we talk with hospitals. We talk about ledger, distributed ledger technologies much safer in our opinion and we we get less misunderstanding when you bring the word blockchain uh, i know that i have 30 minutes to explain and then okay put this away we are not doing this and so on i think we need much more pedagogy to to push for push forward and blockchain in, in healthcare it's going to take time but even the last three to four years have been spectacular in terms of progress i think yeah, why is sure. a blockchain relevant for federated learning and what is so, in the blockchain as well so I think that's one of the key elements to understand when blockchain is relevant is the question of trust. Blockchain is here to solve the problem of trust fundamentally. And the question is, why is trust needed? In federated learning, the, the key is to have competitors work together and they don't trust each other. They don't trust that they are going to uh, report the good performance. They don't trust that they are going to co do the, the computations or try to steal the data or anything. So we bring the blockchain as an element to consolidate this trust between the competitors. And the way we, and from a business perspective, at Okin, we say, okay, we build this consortium. We cannot, us at Okin, be corrupted by one of the consortium members who is going to, to ask us to leak some data. The blockchain prevents this. We have a way that ensures that us at Okin cannot tamper with the network, cannot access the data or, or launch shadow computations or anything like this. So the, in a weird way, the blockchain helps prevent our customers from attacks from each other, but also from Okin. So we are really trying to consolidate the trust between uh, this consortia that we are building. So. I think uh, I've been to many blockchain uh, meetings or, or whatever, and one of the most most interesting uh, points that I heard was a lot of people talk about blockchain, but as long as you don't say what's in the blockchain, what's in the ledger, it's not it, it's it's a bit of bullshit. So what is in the ledger, and what how do we do this? So remember, we are doing federated learning, so we are orchestrating machine learning tasks across distributed hospitals. So basically, we, there is one concept which is called the compute plan. The compute plan is the organization of all the operations across the network, saying first I'm going to be trained uh, to train this model on this data set uh, in hospital A, then I'm going to go to hospital B, then I'm going to split this in two, two parallel tracks, train on, on C and D. And, and so basically, you have a kind of graph of operations, which we call compute plan. And this is what, what is in the ledger for federated learning. You map all the operations, training and evaluation operations that you do across your network. So if you look only at the blockchain, 
you have a clear view of what was computed, how you have your data been used, what's the genealogy of a model, how, how it was built, what was its performance at this time of the, the training and at this time here. And the ledger contains all the identity cards of the model, but this, uh, this identity card gives you, or it's not, it's more the resume, or the CV, like uh, it gives, it explains for a model, what was his education, how it was trained, what was uh, the evaluation at this time, what was the grades and, and so on. Like the history. And it gives you the whole history of the model, yes. So this is what we have in the, in, in the blockchain, in, in our situation. And complemented with that, we have an advanced permission system, which makes it possible for a data owner to say, okay, I agree that my data can be used by this other person to trigger an algorithm. Maybe I just want to be uh, my data to be accessible by neural networks. So I say just this mod algorithm can be used here. And, and so you, as a data owner, you can be very specific about how you, who can use your data to do what. And this permission system is a kind of filter on the, on the compute plan, which is implemented through smart contracts. So it's self-enforceable. So if you say, I just want my data to be used for this uh, and this uh, purpose, uh, nobody can change it, not even Hawking. We cannot flip a, a, a bit somewhere and say that, that it works. And so that's the... This is why it is relevant for federated learning is because it guarantees a smooth orchestration of all computations in a trustless way across the different partners. And you can trust that what is written in the ledger is exactly what happens. Got it. Thanks for explaining that. What are the benefits of blockchain and federated learning? I feel like we just discussed that. But if there's more you'd like to share... So uh, very briefly, as I said, the trustless permission regime is a very nice way to increase and enforce data governance and, uh, and, and data access regime. The second point is the traceability and reproducibility. So suppose you are the FDA or EMA, or you want just to make sure that this algorithm has a certain performance. With our system, you just look at what's in the ledger, uh, what's in the blockchain, and it gives you all the, the, the history of the model and what was the performance of the models how it generalizes on new new hospitals and similarities. So it has a lot of value in terms of uh, being able to explain precisely uh, what was done and also to reproduce it if you if need be. Then there is a security aspect, which is actually the ledger is used. It's, it is the operator of the orchestration, meaning that we write the operations in the ledger filtered by the, the smart contracts. And then the all the network is going to follow the ledger. So the ledger is updated uh, in a decentralized way, but all the computations are just listening to the ledger. There is no like a scheduler. Uh, the, the ledger is the scheduler here. And what's really good is that from a security perspective, it is impossible for many for anyone to launch shadow computations in these hospitals. No, and so I cannot myself go and train a model on hospital or pharma data, even if uh, at Okin I could corrupt any uh, engineer. I simply cannot do this. So that's good. And the final one, I think, and this one is a bit more speculative. We are not there yet. What's interesting here and is when we start thinking about uh, currency. For now, everything which I've explained is without any currency. Uh, we are dealing with distributed ledger technology. Uh, that's it. But what is the value or what is the quantification that we could get out of this? And how can, could we tokenize this to some extent? And I think the, the key idea here is to say, with this process, we can give a value to the data. 
So each data set could be attributed a certain value. And how would we compute this value? Is what is the performance increment, the performance improvement that was brought to the model after you've trained on this data? So this is the basic approach, but it can be much more uh, uh, I mean, complicated and in a, a new field which is emerging, which is, which is called the evaluation of the contribution score of data sets. And what's very interesting here is that you could give uh, clear values to the different data sets, reputations or, or quality or quantities about the, the data sets based on how they help the model improve performance overall. And we believe that this is a very interesting and, 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 and good way to create a market around data, medical data, you, because you can filter out what is bad data and what is good and useful data. And, and I do believe this is not what we are doing right now. We, we are not mature enough and the, the, the field is not. But I do believe that uh, this is one of the most promising aspects because we have a very uh, hands-on and practical and honest way to quantify the value of data, which is not used to do in our world. It's very difficult. That's uh, one of the biggest problems we face today, really. And why... So. We talked about technology stack earlier, but why did you choose Hyperledger Fabric as the underlying decentralized ledger technology for Alkin Connect, I think, yeah. So it was a choice that we made like three, four years ago. We wanted to go with a private consortium blockchain. We did not want to use a public blockchain. And at the time, Hyperledger seemed like the most mature, the best choice. It was written production ready on the website which it was not. Um, and this is the choice we made. To be honest, today, I don't know if we would make the same choice. Uh, there are much more competitors uh, on, on this aspect. And we are trying to experiment with a new and to make our code modular to experiment with new kinds of DLT technologies. But uh, but we, we started with Fabric and we, we uh, that's maybe legacy to some extent. So if you were to migrate over to a new protocol for your base TL DLT, would that be an easy process? Because I have heard of other companies saying, oh, we're blockchain agnostic. They can go and work with any blockchain. And it seems like it, it'll uh, be an easy switchover, but is it really easy? It seems like it would yeah, be. Uh, well, I've always been very impressed by the people saying they are blockchain. It's complicated to disentangle code overall, blockchain or not blockchain. Like uh, I talked to the guy who opened source Kubernetes, and the guy, what they told me, the biggest challenge was to take it apart from the rest of what was at Google. And, uh, and uh, I think it's very difficult. So I have to say, we are doing this right now, but it's painful and it takes a lot of time. We have to increase modularity of code. We have to do a lot of, uh, of cleaning and things like this. And the concepts are not always the same. So we, I don't find this an easy task. Can you share which protocol you're focused on now? So we are testing a lot. I cannot commit to one and I do not want to uh, to, to put in a bad situation those who are really looking at this right now by no saying problem. something which would be maybe a bit wrong. No, I totally respect that. No worries. My question, I had a question about Ethereum and whether or not that would be critical for success for Alkin. Not at all. We are using the, the private uh, blockchain. So the Ethereum is a different world. Maybe we could connect to it someday, especially if we find a way to evaluate data value. And But un until then, um, we are completely disconnected from that. How can blockchain orchestrated federal, how can blockchain orchestrated federated learning enable a new method of building AI models? So just we talked about that a little bit already so the the key aspect here is that the blockchain can help build models 
across different hospitals with a, a trustless identity card, a trustless history, which cannot be corrupted and which defines how the model performs. So we, you have not only a model trained across different uh, partners, but you are you have also the guarantee that uh, this is how the model was trained and how it performed. And so that's, that puts, that creates a situation where models are much more closer to be production ready. If, if I had to certify the value of some models, I would use this. So I think it's it's a new way of building models. It's not, it's not only that you train the models and then you have the model, it's you have also the framework to build a model, train it across several hospitals and evaluate it and have the clear guarantee that it performs at its claims to be. And this would be a big deal because the today the the medical device, the the predictive models which are medical device, I don't think they are well analyzed, well evaluated, or certified. You just need to publish a paper. And yeah, that's it. So I think it would help a lot. And uh, of course, the federated learning approach, the, the main value is that you can train on, on more data, more heter heterogeneous data, different situations, different the types of population, different types of diseases. Uh, and of course, you increase the value of the models themselves. So that's the, the, the two key aspects in my opinion. How important is community governance when developing DLT solutions for AI? So. Governance in consortium is absolutely central. Uh, so you need people to, to talk together. It's extremely difficult to do otherwise. So it's a different kind of community because you want to have the, the medical doctors, the scientific leads to be involved in here. So it's not about the, the community around the, the ledger or around the, the blockchain, whatever. It's a community around the, the participants to the consortium. And, and it's crucial that they know each other because it will promote trust and, and make it easier to work together. And also because they still have to do something which is very important is discuss the kind of data that they should collaborate with. And not only the kind of data, but also the formats, the types of data and build together this data preparation manual. The community governance is, I think it's uh, two thirds of my work. Yeah, no, I think that's a, uh, it's true. I think understanding how the people work together is more challenging than the technology itself, which is quite, yeah. you know, quite interesting. And we talked about game theory a little bit and incentives. And I think figuring out what the right incentives are and then programming it into your protocol, that is the hard part because you can, I think, only do it initially once in the beginning. And then, of course, you can change it maybe, but the initial genesis of that protocol is so important to get right the first time. Yeah. Interesting. That's a very. Uh, it, humans are a bit more flexible than uh, than. Uh, humans are more flexible good. than blockchains. I agree. <laughs> yeah. That's good. So tell me about the ecosystem roadmap for the rest of 2021, and then if there's anything else related to blockchain and federated learning that you'd like to share, we could talk about that too. So basically, the uh, we are seeing the rise of machine learning for healthcare. It's slow, but it's here, and uh, and it has already started. So the, the impact will not necessarily be seen in 2021 at a massive scale, but uh, 10 years from now, most of the things would be AI-driven, and healthcare would be, so many things would be linked to AI in healthcare. So I, I think if we look at 2021, what's, what we are observing now is the growth of the medical data sets. So, the medical data we are creating right now are much better quality, much better organized, and much better centralized. And as I said previously, what we should look at is who are the guys consolidating the largest data sets. So there are some people, uh, Tempus, 
uh, or tyrants who have ways to, to gather medical data sets. There are people who buy companies who have data sets and consolidate them. There are people who run governments where they can seize all the data from, from their citizens. And we hope that federated learning is another way to, 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 to unite the data sets, not by moving them, but by make, making them interoperable and uh, accessible for, for training models. I think this is the, the, the key aspect that we should look at. And in terms of uh, roadmap, uh, I think this is one of the most important aspects fundamentally. How are the data sets consolidating and who are the players here? And I think at the same time, it's very important and fair uh, to say that regulation and certification around machine learning is going to play a, a, a very important role and it has to develop. And, and we are not really there yet and, and it has to develop. So I think these are the two big trends uh, for, for the next decade is how are the data going to consolidate and is FL one of the ways to consolidate, consolidate it? Of course, I would say yes, but I'm biased. And the second aspect is how are regulators going to operate to, to make all of this machine learning field a bit more organized and, and I think also more robust uh, and more accurate to, yeah, to be relevant for medical disease. Much appreciated there. I have a few questions just to learn about you a little bit more, personal questions. So what do you believe in that most people would disagree with? Being trained as a neuroscientist, I believe that there is no free will. I believe that what we estimate as being our own choices or being our own personality is uh, like a, a tale that we tell ourselves. And I believe our society is built on, on concepts like responsibility, like merits, like different things which are actually not, not based on on what on our biology and what we are for real. And it changes the, your perspective of, of the world and success and failure, I think. I guess that's a, it's a rabbit hole. It can go deep. Yeah, we could spend another full podcast just on that question, I think, um, or that answer. I think that's really interesting. And I feel like even in healthcare, I'm just thinking about how a patient, a typical patient journey, they not only do they not have free will, they have very little choices to make in their process in healthcare as well. In many ways, yeah. we're limited there. Yeah. And the topic of consent is uh, everywhere in, in healthcare. If you, if you say there is no free will, consent is a weird concept as well. Right. If, yeah. if I wanted medical service, I have to consent to give my data. So it's not like I have a choice. I can not consent and still get medical services. Yeah, there's a lot there to, to talk about too. What... Yeah. Is there a favorite book that you have that has influenced you? So I have many favorite books, but one of them, I think, is the Foundation by Asimov. So um, very famous in France, at least, but I guess in the States as well. Uh, and I was very influenced by the psychohistory inside. So basically in Foundation, they, uh, they, they talk about a civilization which has developed a, a science, a technology, which they call psychohistory which is a way to, to predict how entire civilizations are going to develop. And, and from like the, the large scale, from the, the large population and the uh, central limit theorems. And, and so it's really nice how they bring mathematics close to the application to the growth of civilization. And what I loved is this idea that how you behave individually is on a different scale and quite weakly linked with how the population evolves as a whole. And that's, you would describe them differently. And, and so all of this uh, kind of perception that we have that uh, the civilization, the population is driven by individual humans is simply not the laws of the, the civilization and the population. And this was very impactful for me. 
Interesting. I'll include that in the show notes for audience to check out. If it's not too personal, what would you consider to be your biggest mistake? So it's a big mistake I made in a previous company. When you work in a startup, you cannot do fundamentally different projects. There is no, there is no side project in a startup. You should not be out of the critical path. And if you do a kind of project on the side or try to convince, even if you convince the CEO or, or whoever, the dynamics doesn't go this way. So you, when you work in a startup, you have to be on the critical path. And I learned that the hard way <laughs> by being not in the critical path. <laughs> Good advice. What are your thoughts on the AI singularity that is supposed to happen in 2045, supposedly by, you know, Ray Kurzweil? So I am actually not very interested by this. I find this a bit cheesy, very marketing and, and yeah, it's really AI fandom. Like uh, people like to, to, to be crazy about AI. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not very excited about this. I think that if you look at the definition of this, I, I did a little bit of research to try to build up my, 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 my answer. So the first way is very generic, is irreversible progress made by AI. This is already happening. We are not going to go back to a situation where there was no AI. One of the, the big criticisms I have for this is that it's very anthropocentric. Uh, when we define uh, the singularity, it's often compared to the human intelligence. And uh, I don't think that the human intelligence is a good scale, simply because we do not know what the human intelligence is. We know that animals and many other entities are much better on some tasks and much more intelligent on some aspect than we are. So how do we define human intelligence and how and, and why do we say that is the, 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 the unit to some extent? I find this a bit weird, honestly, and very uh, a bit narcissistic, to be honest. And but finally, for, for me, the, the most um, important uh, aspect out of this is that uh, if you look at the dynamics of, of how things are evolving, machine learning and AI is pervasive in many fields. It, it is applicable to many different fields and it brings value in many different fields. This is what is striking about AI is that it's, it jumps from one field to the other. It's not that it's very good at reproducing the human mind. Having done a PhD in neuroscience, I can tell you it has nothing to do with, neuros with neuroscience like fit for our networks like we are doing. What is impressive is that it can be applied to many different fields and it can be applied to fields we do not know about. And this is where it's beautiful because you are going to probe fields where we have no knowledge about this and this is going to be powerful immediately. So my belief is that on the contrary, AI is going to lead to massive improvements in the fields where humans are bad and where we are good at having nice discussions late in the evening I don't give a shit about AI. It's simply not very, not very relevant for me in this place. So I'm not a big fan. Yeah. So in the beginning of this episode or in the beginning of the podcast, we talked about Neuralink and the ability to create a device that can be implanted in your brain and potentially uh, read and even input signals to the brain. What are your thoughts on that? And what can be happening to us in five to 10 to 20 years if that kind of technology keeps developing? So I think that in the brain, hundreds of billions of um, neurons and what we are measuring with Neuralink, what we are influencing with Neuralink is the activity of these neurons. But who you are, the, the way you react and things like this is not in the activity of neurons. It's in the strength of the connections between the neurons. And this we cannot measure. 
we cannot influence or only indirectly. So I think that it is hopeless. Uh, that's having, even if they have uh, 1,000 measurements or, or, or uh, of sensors or, or 1,000 actuators uh, in the brain, it is not going to be a fundamental way to understand how the brain works. The brain is very, there is a curse of measurements of what is important in the brain. Activity is nice. Most important is the, are the strengths of the connections between neurons, and we do not know how to measure this. But I think it is not going to help a lot to understand how the brain works. It's fancy, it's nice, it's, it will lead to good research, and it will be a good research tool, I'm sure of that. However, the main effect that we are going to see is that the brain will learn to use the Neuralink to do something cool. So I think it's not how Neuralink is going to influence the brain, is how the brain is going to use Neuralink to do something cool. And there are already very nice examples of prosthesis that you put somewhere and your brain learns to use them. You can build a third arm or you can do many different things. And this is cool. And we are going to do things with that. But you don't necessarily need to have a, a cranial surgery to remove things and put... Well, good for research, but falls on the fundamental curse of neuroscience, which is we, we just don't measure or influence the, the, the important variable, which is the strength of connections. Interesting. Yeah, it brings up a lot of questions that I have. We could talk about it later because I know we're wrapping up here. But if you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it to be implanted? Not in the brain, but in the as a tooth. I think it would be great uh, because you could remove it, charge it. So already uh, energy is very important with this. Sure. So you'd have like a, a nice way to do it. It's uh, And it's in a place where you hear the voice, you have the breath of the person, you have all the movement of the head, uh, you can also uh, measure the saliva and the different things that you eat. Oh. You have a lot of information which is here in the tooth, and it's accessible. You need to to upgrade a little bit how we do uh, you know, dental surgery and stuff like this. But I think it is definitely achievable, and uh, I think it's the most relevant one because the other stuff would need to have you need, we need to have embedded energy creation, and we are far away from it. But the, the digital, the connected tooth could be something that you put uh, by by your bedside. Uh, <laughs> it gives a whole uh, new meaning. Night. It gives a whole new meaning to Bluetooth potentially. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But I really like that answer. It might be one of my favorite answers I've received for this question. And I like the fact that in the future maybe it can have sensors so it knows what you eat, so your diet is also tracked if you wanted to do. Yeah, that. when you smoke, when you we do so many things with through Talk, the mouth, yeah. we breathe and eat through, through this. It's um, good point. How do you like yeah. to unwind and stay in shape? I do a lot of judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I'm a, I'm a fighter by design. I was right this way. So I really like to get on the mats, put the gi and, uh, and forget I have a... You know, I, I switch off the, the frontal cortex and go back to the, to, to the lower level parts of the brain. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm very happy this way. But unfortunately, this is definitely not the kind of sport which can be done in COVID time. So I'm getting out of shape right now. Hopefully you can do some biking or hiking or something like that in the meantime. Yeah, but it doesn't build your stamina and, and the muscles as, as good as, the, as the, the, the judo. Well, Matthew, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show and discussing machine learning, artificial intelligence, and why blockchain is important for from federated learning. Are there any additional key takeaways you'd like to share with the audience? So for me, the three things to, to have in mind about what, why and what, how machine learning is going to influence healthcare can be summarized in three words. Collaboration is key. We need to gather data sources. This is absolutely key. Confidentiality 
is a market driver. It's not only regulation. It's not only uh, privacy. It's also how the data is going to be shared because it's competitive and valuable data. And compliance, because I think that the regulation is going to to, to be very important to develop, uh, to be able to have something which is that we can trust. And all of this will lead to a situation where we trust machine learning in healthcare, which and we still have uh, some uh, way to go. And I think that to build up this trust, uh, federated learning is the best tool to scale this trust at a, as a, scale, at a scale which reach something which impacts our life very much. So uh, that would be my, my takeaway and summary. Fantastic. Again, really appreciate this insightful conversation. And how can the audience reach out to you? So there, are, there, there is, of course, the, 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 a few websites, Okin website, Melody website, that I invite you to look at for a lot of details. I'm on Twitter with M uh, underscore Galtier, and I'm also on LinkedIn. And so feel free to reach out to me and uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, to Perfect. Discuss. I'll put those links in the show notes as well for everyone. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.